thank you guys so much for being here. Drew, this is great. Thank you for uh, allowing us opportunity to worship our great God uh, in song, in thought, and praise. Scott, thank you for allowing me to uh, join you. Ryan, thank you for opening the pulpit as well. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you. It's, uh, we're going to have an enjoyable night. I want to say a couple of things first that I think are important um, as a disclaimer. The topic that we're going to talk about tonight is a, is a very sensitive topic. We talk about the issue of mental health, mental illness. When we discuss this issue, I'm very aware of the sensitivity of it um, by its very nature and its growth in our culture. I'm very aware that for most of us who are sitting in this room, we have either experienced it ourselves personally, or we know someone who is dear to us who has been a part of the system or understood the system or had deep, dark human experiences. So when we address this issue, I'm very aware of the sensitivity of it. I want us to address it in such a way, though, that allows us to breathe the scripture into the way we think about mental health. The topic for me tonight is uh, giving a biblical view of mental health. How do we think properly and appropriately according to the scriptures, according to what God has revealed in what we call in our culture the mental health system? I think it's apparent for all of us. Open your Bible to, to Psalm 19. I want to begin with a, a particular passage because I want this passage to be on our heart and on our mind as we, as we dive into this topic. I think it's helpful for us to be grounded. As Hebrews would say, Jesus is the anchor of our soul. I think it's important that we have understanding scripturally of what God describes as we talk about this, this very difficult topic. Psalm 19.7 says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. That's a claim. It's a statement. It's a strong statement about the scriptures and its vitality, usefulness, and sufficiency in dealing with matters of the human soul. It's a claim that, that only the word of God in this picture can revive what ails the darkness of man. This idea of reviving really literally means bring back to life, to restore everything that has been broken. And wouldn't you agree that our world has experienced deep brokenness? Wouldn't you agree that you've experienced possibly deep brokenness? Think about your life and the daily stress that you endure. And that's minuscule compared to what many of you may have to deal with. Suicide rates are increasing. Do we have to be reminded even of that this week as a dear brother in California takes his own life? Suicide rates are increasing at the rate of, uh, now it's the tenth leading cause of death among adults. In adolescence, it is the leading cause of death. To get to a place where you feel suicidal, you're in a desperate place. You see darkness all around. It's a very real experience. It, it can't be excused or explained away. It's a very real experience. The effects of natural disasters, I, I think about the hurricanes in recent time. I'm originally from Florida, so uh, hurricane season is a, is a difficult time for many. But I think of what 
Puerto Rico has recently endured and the Bahamas are experiencing even now with natural disasters, we experience darkness on varying levels of degrees and difficulty. We have an increase in the diagnosis of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, because of wars and uh, growing conflict that happens. And uh, not just wars, but when we think of post-traumatic stress, we also think of things like um, abuse of various kinds, child sexual abuse and domestic violence and so on. We're experiencing in our culture at rapid rates brokenness in families. The brokenness of marriage and understanding of marriage, different ideas of sexuality and, and all sorts. The, the fact is, is all of these things are simple shadows of death. And if all those stressors are not enough, if all those difficulties, if all those points of darkness are not enough, all of us know that death is, is looming. Sometimes I, I remind my wife that, babe, we can eat kale every single day of our lives, but, <laughs> but we're going to die. Um, we're going to die. <clears throat> That's usually when I'm getting uh, permission to eat ice cream is how that <laughs> normally works. I, I say that to say death is a reality. And, and what we experience on a daily basis are shadows, foreshadowings, that, that life is not the way it's supposed to be. Cornelius Planting, a junior, actually wrote a book by that title describing a brief explanation of sin and all of its effects on our humanness. You see, peace is a wreck. We understand that, that something cries out in us that what we're experiencing here is, is not the way it's supposed to be. We're not experiencing peace. We're not experiencing calm. We're not resting. What I want you to see is, as we all experience these things, there are different ways to describe those very real human experiences. I think there have been times in the past where for biblical counselors or even the church, people look at the way the church responds to these things and they say, well, you're just dismissing that I don't experience or feel depressive uh, feelings. No, that's not the case. I think it's very real, the experiences that we feel. A part of my concern is the way in which we describe those particular difficulties. Sometimes we act as if the Bible has little or nothing to say about these difficulties. Sometimes we, we act as though the Bible's explanation of these things is too simplistic to deal with in, in a modern world. When we think about the mental health system, we're looking through a certain shade of a prism. We're trying to make sense of life. We're, we're trying to interpret life and what's happening, and we're trying to explain the brokenness and the, the way in which people feel in response to all that's broken around them in their environment and then also within them. I don't blame the mental health system for trying to describe human problems. You see, what happens is, is we look through different prisms to describe different things. When we see data, we see data differently. All of us see data differently. I, I teach at a seminary, and one of the things that I'll do often, I, I have the privilege to teach it at um, rather large seminaries, and in those seminaries, we have uh, students who speak English as a second language. And one of the things that I love to do is I, I love to bring students up and I, I bring them to the front who speak a second language and I'll say, I want you to do me a favor. Can you do me a favor? Yes, I can do you a favor. W will you write a sentence on the, on the board? Could you do that for me in your own language? Yeah, yeah, I can, I can do that. I can do that. So they'll write their sentence on the board. And it's always interest me, interesting to me to see because uh, all the Americans, you know what it means to be an American, right? 
you call people who speak two languages bilingual and three languages trilingual and people who speak one language, it's American. Uh, my point is when people, when people write this sentence on the board, what, what inevitably happens is, is my students start to try and guess what's, what's written. Because what they can see on the board, they can see a semblance. They, they know that there's intended to be meaning behind this, this conglomeration of letters of some sort or figures or characters that have been written on the wall. The most recent was a guy from Burma. And he's writing in a specific dialect in Burmese this past semester. And he, he, puts, this, uh, he puts this sentence on the board. And, and everybody's trying to figure out what the sentence could possibly say. You see, what happens is when we see data as human beings, we're, we're as Paul Tripp said, we're revelation receivers. And what happens is we see that data. And when we see that data, we, we can't help but we want to make sense of it. We need to make sense of it in life. And this is exactly in, from my perspective what the world tries to do when they see brokenness of people's lives they see bits and pieces of data and not seeing it through the same lens as the way God describes humanity the way God describes uh, human brokenness and the way the, the way God describes what we experience in the human realm but they see and experience things with their natural eyes and they're, they're trying to make sense of it with the best of their ability to understand human brokenness and how we can repair it. That's a noble goal. It's not a bad goal. It's a noble thing. I can remember uh, being a, a, an undergraduate student, and, and one of my desires was I wanted to work, people, work with people. I wanted to help people. I wanted to help people through their difficulties and through their problems. And so I pursued a, a bachelor's degree in psychology, and that was my goal. I was wanting to understand how to help people. I mean, think about the mental health system uh, it sees people from a different perspective. Let me give you an example. Are you guys football fans here? I'm not sure if that was encouraging or not. Well, listen, hey, <clears throat> I live in Kansas City, Missouri, and uh, most of the years on planet Earth, that was not the best place to li live during football season, but this year it's a good place to live. Uh, we have Patrick Mahomes. You ever heard of him? Uh, he's a solid player. Okay, so my point is this. When we talk about football... <laughs> If we were to talk about this game, this sport, this game of football, did you know most of the rest of the world, when they hear that term, what would come to mind? See, it's very different than what, you, what came to your mind when I mentioned this term football. Could you imagine if, if uh, we get a bunch of internationals together and we Americans start describing football and we're wanting to play football according to American football rules, but they bring out a soccer ball? Uh, would that work very well? I mean, that doesn't work very well. You're getting red cards all over the place because you're tackling people uh, when they're trying to dribble the ball down the, down the, the field. Uh, my point is, when we try to take what God has given to us in the natural world, what God has given to us in his special revelation, and we try to uh, appropriate what he sees in life, when we take the, the world system, the two things don't quite mesh. We see discrepancies, we see differences, we see misunderstandings, we see different examples of, of brokenness in life, different expressions of these things. I think a, a fair question that we should begin to ask is, how did the mental health system begin? W where did it come from? I think there's a brief history that we could tell that, that there's a lot more to say about it, but I think there's a brief history that will help us in our discussion so that what I'm trying to do is to distinguish the difference, the background, the things that, that are in the backdrop that help give meaning 
to the way we think about human experiences. And I want to contrast at the end with the scriptures, the way the scriptures talk about the difference between what humanity experiences. When we begin in this discussion, oftentimes what's happening is we're looking at things that we consider culturally to be abnormal. Ed actually spoke about viewing some of those abnormalities and how uncomfortable it makes us feel. But culturally, that's exactly what we do. We, we try to look at those things which are abnormalities. And, and with those abnormalities, we begin to try and make sense of those. And we group those into uh, common or likeness categories that we build, that we've constructed based on certain criteria. Now, we could go back certainly a lot further. But uh, the idea of mental health is actually distinct from, in, in so many ways, from even psychiatry. When you look back historically, the idea of mental health came as a reaction to the psychiatric movement. Psychiatry in modern America, really the first decade of the 20th century, had been practicing all sorts of uh, asylum practices that were quite barbaric in the way that they treated people who were considered in those days, the term that was used was madness. And so they would be treated at the asylums, and one of these uh, men who was treated was a man by the name of Clifford Beers. And it was in the first decade of the 20th century that, that through his experiences, he said, surely this can't be the way that we try and help people with uh, psychiatric problems through madness. And he begins this uh, articulate way of explaining what would be known as mental health. In the interim, he called it mental hygiene. It is we have to be able to cre create environments, he says, that actually lend toward health. And what he's trying to describe is really akin to a medical model when we think about our bodily afflictions. Is we, we need to build some sort of environment that would now create uh, a tendency toward health. Sort of a sanitary environment that allows us to, to pursue health. And he's thinking about that relative to a mental state. Now, you've got to understand that, that something has to be at the core Something has to be at the core for him to understand what he's aiming at. You see, what he's aiming at is he's aiming at uh, mental, uh, mental stability. He's aiming at mental peace. He's aiming at some sort of description where I would feel comfortable in my own skin. I would feel comfortable even through the difficulties of life. And this idea of mental hygiene was born. And you can hear even in the, the language that was used, and this was predominant uh, really in a lot of HR departments uh, early on in the 20th century in America. And the mental hygiene movement became uh, really famous very quickly. And so the idea was we have to build sanitary environments in order for people, humans, to flourish. You see, unknowingly, essentially what now starts to happen is where do we begin to lean on for hope to live mentally healthy lives? You see, what happens, I want you to think through this process. Listen, when we get finished with this talk, my goal is not that you think exactly like me. That's honestly not the goal. The goal as we work through this is, is I want you to start asking the appropriate questions based on the evidence that we see. That's really the goal. And so this is going to take work long after you leave even this room. But we get back to the story of mental hygiene and we think about what he was trying to accomplish. What it takes is, is a, a goal, an aim. He's aiming it at something that allows me to now think at peace, to be at peace, to flourish in my humanity. And Unknowingly, essentially what begins to happen is we begin to aim at the environment as something that, that makes us who we are. And if the environment is not sanitary, then there's no way that I can flourish in my, in my mental state. You see, historically, uh, then we see the, the mental hygiene movement move into what was known at the National Institute of Mental Health as, uh, as now mental health. 
that created the World Health Organization in the 60s, I believe that was. Uh, this is one of the things it said about the World Health or from the World Health Organization relative to mental health and the mental state. Historians and other academics have mainly located the mental hygiene movement within the description of an ever-widening psychologization of society that has taken place from the early 20th century. The terminology of adjustment, rather than in previous generations it was salvation, for example, can be understood as enabling an extension of the psychiatric sphere of influence outside of the asylum. And what they were doing was essentially responding to the barbaric practices that were happening inside of the asylum. Through this means, it's argued that psychiatric and psychological experts were able to sell themselves as uniquely qualified to mediate mental health and good citizenship. So the goal was to, how do we build character and human flourishing? And the way that we do that is we have to reconstruct environments that now uh, are the seedbed for which that can grow. You see, what, what that's brought about in the last century is it's brought about the culture that you and I now live in. It's brought about the culture where we're super sensitive about everything that goes on around us and we become dependent people on the environment for our sanity. I want you to just think as I'm talking through this how distinct and different and even contrary that is from the truths that we hear repeatedly in Scripture. These categories are culturally appraised. We see in the 1950s, which was born really in the latter part of the, the 19th century uh, from Emil Kraepelin, what was called the, the Kraepelinian dichotomy. It was a way to categorize human problems. And the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, was born as, a, as an expression of that. And the DSM was really constructed uh, in, a, in a Freudian mentality using the terms of psychosis and neurosis as ways to explain human problems or human brokenness or human experiences. And these categories were built in such a way as, as descriptions, and oftentimes very appropriate descriptions, describing what a person would feel. For example, we talk about the issue of depression and being clinically depressed. There are really good descriptions of the way a person feels and what they experience when, when they find themselves in depressive states. Because the natural eye can, can watch that a person is, doesn't have an appetite, that a person uh, cries uncontrollably all the time, that a person has difficulty functioning at their job when, when their life is consumed with this darkness. And so you begin to see these categorizations built based on the description. The odd thing that happens in the building of this description in 1952, it was something like 112 diagnostic categories. Where we are today, it's in its really more than the fifth iteration, but it's the DSM-5, which was created in 2013. Over 400 diagnoses now that we see. And what's happening is the, the psychiatric and psychological community are questioning the idea of when is this going to end? When is this going to end when we're going to cease, we're going to put to death this idea that we're, we're making normalcy a medical issue? When are we going to cease describing even normal human problems as being something that's a psychological or psychiatric disorder? You see, what began to happen is we began to categorize every aspect of our human beings and our human experiences as difficulties and problems. Because what we're looking at is we're aiming at something. What is it that we're aiming at? We're aiming at mental stability and human comfort that's to be fostered by the environment. And when that doesn't happen now, we're not aiming at the ability to flourish, which has later come to, to fruition in the terms of being happy and be able to pursue happiness. When we think about happiness as being the aim, now what happens is anything that hinders me from pursuing happiness as the goal becomes the evil. 
And so we begin to categorize those things and, and label ourselves and identify ourselves as being in those categories first. You know, the interesting thing about the DSM system, uh, I read the DSM to my students, and you say, what are you doing in a seminary, taking such a secular book from psychology and psychiatry, reading this to your students? I think it's important that they know about it. I think it's important that you know about the book and what's claimed, because oftentimes we think that what's behind it is such rigorous science that we begin to say, how can we think differently about that? Because that would pit now science against faith. And I, could, I can just tell you that, uh, and, and I can give you a, a bibliography if you're so interested and inclined, and this would be reading that would be interesting to you, that what's coming out of not crazy religious people like me, uh, but these are people who are from within the psychiatric and psychological communities who have been studying these things for years, are demonstrating that the research that, that proposed what, what really propped up the ideas of the psychological and psychiatric community and the mental health community uh, were, were actually not demonstrated through scientific research. Something that's unknown to a lot of people is if you read the introduction to the DSM, there's never ever, and I, I appreciate this about the APA. The APA actually uh, puts this book together. And one of the things I appreciate about the APA is, is they put a disclosure in there. That for, none of, for uh, any of the disorders that are in this book, we do not know the etiology. Etiology just simply means the cause. But we don't know the cause of these types of disorders. Now take that as what's assumed in the culture relative to something like the chemical imbalance theory or the ideas of a chemical cure. Uh, we assume, and I'm not saying that, that we might discover something at some point, okay, that's, that's certainly fair, but at least up to date at this point, uh, that has not been discovered. And the interesting thing about that to me is the DSM clearly states that in its introduction, that we don't know the cause of some of these things. Now, the thing that's, that's further uh, mind-boggling to me as to the cultural flow of these things is the DSM also actually says, because we don't know the etiology, we're not recommending any particular path of treatment. Now, that's interesting, too, because when they describe this, this forward movement that there's not a prescribed path of treatment, what does that demonstrate to us? That they're not sure what caused it in the first place. And here's what you have to see that I think is really critical and important. As an, as an honest appraisal of what's really going on in the, in the secular psychiatric community and psychological community, is when you look at the mental health system, there's not one primary type or style of therapy that's proposed. Uh, to the last count that I can recall and that I've read about, there are at least 450 named different therapies and psychologies. Now, what that demonstrates is these are different philosophical dispositions, different ways of seeing life, different ideas of the way humanity ought to be, the way humanity should be, what humanity should live like, what humanity should expect. And then when we don't see a, ourselves living in that way, there's a, there's a deficit or a detriment there's a disorder, if you will. And now this psychology is going to be imposed or, or enacted or practiced methodologically in such a direction that now we're going to repair what we believe is broken. And if we're going to enter into something like that, there has to be a way of seeing and understanding the world that you're trying to put together the meaning of life, the understanding of life, the expression of life, why we do the things we do and what causes us to be broken. If I'm not mistaken, the Bible has spoken very clearly about that subject. If I'm not mistaken, the Bible actually gives a philosophy, a wisdom 
on how and why men and women are broken, why we experience the difficulties that we experience. I want to ask you a question. I think it's odd that the DSM is a book of a thousand pages and 400 diagnoses of abnormalities. And if you read the introduction and the expressions sprinkled throughout of these diagnoses, there's, remember, it's 400 descriptions of abnormalities, but there's never one description of normal. I find it interesting that when we approach these ideas of abnormality, and yet there's never one description of what's normalcy, how do you know what's abnormal if you've not first defined that which is normal? I can remember being a kid, and uh, for some reason, my, my dad owned five acres, for some reason, my brother, when he graduated high school, we were going to do a project for my dad. My dad would entered the mission field, and so he was gone quite a bit, and uh, one of the ways that we were going to help him keep his, uh, his green belt, which was an agricultural tax break, is uh, we were going to come up with some way, and we weren't going to go take care of the cows because we were off living our life, and he was in college, and I was married and had kids by then. And uh, so we got in the blueberry business. And, um, and so one of the things that I remember about the blueberry business is, first of all, it's hard to grow blueberries in Florida. Um, <laughs> but I did find that there are specific species that, that were created, actually, as hybrids to flourish in Florida. And one of the things, we had grown crops before. That was not a big deal. But uh, my dad had always been there. And this time he was in Honduras serving. And so my brother and I were trying to figure this out as young men. And uh, one of the things we noticed is our first several passes with the tractor to, to get the rows made outright is uh, they didn't quite look straight. And so he would eye and I would eye. And we were like, well, how do we know? Because like they all seem to line up together, but they don't all, they're not all straight, right? And so they, all, they were all straight if you looked at the first row, right? But they weren't all straight. And so well, we came up with this brilliant idea is, um, We'll just take this piece of string and we'll tie it from one end to the other. And uh, when we're riding the tractor, we'll just make sure that it goes right by our ear the whole time. And uh, interestingly enough, problem fixed. You see, we had a plumb line that helped us to see when we were off, when we were abnormal, if you will. You see, it's interesting because the world in its system tries to understand people. And oftentimes what happens is it's very culturally appraised. Uh, there's a reason that the DSM is not so easily transferable to other cultures. It's because the mental health system that, that we enjoy today that's rather large in the culture in which we live uh, is not something that's often transferable because what you see happen in different cultures is not abnormal in the ways that we describe them here. Part of that has to do with prosperity and flourishing, but that's another story for another day. When you think of mental health, I think it's important. It, it begs a question, doesn't it? it? It begs a very simple question that I think we have to be very cautious about. You see, the, the mental health system assumes knowledge about certain things. Uh, the first observation that I think is very important for us to make is that um, it's hard for us, in, even in science, psychology, even in science, to study man with scientific vigor. And the reason is because when you think about the scientific method, it takes observation. And certainly we can see uh, behavior. That's without question. We can understand behavior. We can try to talk about behavior. But we always know biblically that behavior is driven by something. It's driven, the Bible says, by passions and desires and intentions and motives, wants, if you will. 
And so if that's the case, we have to begin to question how we're seeing behavior. Are we seeing the language appropriately? Are we interpreting all the data rightly? Are we building a system that's based on everything we can know and see and understand about the brokenness of humanity? It's at least a valid question. The question that I have that I think when we describe even the mental health system is, what does it mean to be healthy? We have to ask the question, what does it mean to be healthy? If we're going to describe abnormality, which is great, we need to define it. We experience it. We know it exists. We know things are not the way it's supposed to be. But we have to first understand, what does it mean to be healthy? Jay Adams said this, Illness caused by psychological stress must be distinguished from illness as the cause of psychological stress. We have to be cautious and careful in the way that we talk about stressors in life as if they're the things that are the cause. Because here's the deal, guys. What it does is it forces now our hope to be on whether or not that stressor goes away as to whether you're going to be sane. The Bible never places hope on what's around you in your environment for you to be at rest in peace. This is a critical, I think, distinction for us when we appraise what's going on in the natural world. We have to be cautious. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm not pursuing things around me that would settle life down and uh, we're told to flee temptation and things of that nature and and, uh, bad company. How many times did my mom tell me bad company corrupts good morals? 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Those things are certainly true. They influence and impact us, but they don't determine us. And see, the the psychological world, the psychiatric world, really has two basic ways. If we could boil this down, there's a lot of nuancing we could do to talk about it, but in our time together, if we could boil that down to two basic ways, uh, the, the only options they have to describe these things would be some variation of environmental determinism or biological determinism. This is why you have all the theories about genes causing this and genes causing that. The Bible's view of what's disordered in human motivation sharply challenges, David Pallison said, all secular pretenders to explanatory wisdom about why we do what we do. When you think about the Bible's wisdom now employed, it begins to challenge the way the seculars describe the reality of humanity and the brokenness of life. You think about mental health, what does it mean to be healthy? I'll give you a basic illustration. Two years ago, my family went through a very tragic and difficult time. I can remember this very vividly, uh, in part because uh, my aunt that passed away was very near and dear to us. When I was, I don't know, like one, um, my grandmother died. And when my grandmother died, they had 10 children, and the last three children were still living at home. And they came to live with us. My parents were newly married, and they, um, her siblings came to live with us. And one of my aunts at that time really grew up as kind of a sister-like figure to me. And uh, about three years ago, I got a phone call, maybe it was three, I can't remember, time flies, um, that she was uh, diagnosed with cancer, bile duct cancer, which is, uh, which is not good. She's 52 at the time. She's a believer in the Lord Jesus. She loves Jesus. She serves, um, she would have been there today at our luncheon, right? She's serving in the kitchen behind the scenes. She takes care of everybody when, when somebody passes or there's a, um, any type of situation that's uh, needing food or uh, taking care of. She's kind of the lady who would organize and take care of all that in our church. And so a dear saint of the Lord. But now at 52 with six children and several grandchildren, uh, she is on her deathbed. Now, I want to contrast that with, uh, with someone who's maybe, let's say, 25. 
who's just graduated from one of the top universities in the nation, and they are thriving. They run five miles, seven miles, ten miles. Any of those are big to me, so, like, they run ten miles a day. <laughs> and, uh, and so they're, they're healthy. They're six figures, maybe more, climbing up the corporate ladder. They don't have a care in the world. Things are good. And you look at them with your natural eye, and you say, man, they're, they're healthy. So then the question that I would pose to you is, Who's, but he doesn't know the Lord. Who's more healthy? You see, what happens, and what, what just happened in your mind is the way we think about health often is driven primarily by biological means. And that, that has to do with the culture in which we live and the things that we talk about. And it's not that I'm dismissing the idea of bodily health. I think we should take care of our bodies. We should love life. We should pursue it, no question. But if we, through Christian lens, now what just happened because we were talk to, talking about spiritual vitality, it changes the way we think about even the definition of health. Because now the, the prospect is my 52-year-old aunt is going to die, but she's going to be given a new body where she's free from the presence, power, and penalty of sin once and for all and forever. And the Bible describes that as being healthy. The Bible describes that as being the goal, glorification, looking to Christ. And this man could die at any moment and die the second death, which I would argue is the most unhealthy disposition that the Bible presents. So when we think about these issues, to not have a biblical lens really jades the way that we would interpret natural data. It jades the way that we see people. George Swinnick said it like this, We never come to a right knowledge about ourselves until we come to a right knowledge of God. You see, the most important thing about us is the way that we think about God. The what we understand about God now gives revelation as to how and why we do the things that we do. It gives lens, if you will. It gives insight. It gives clarity as to the experiences that we, that we have. I was watching a movie on the plane, and I don't do this very often. I'm not a big film watcher, but something intrigued me on the plane over. Have you guys seen this movie called uh, The Professor and the Madman? What an interesting movie. It's describing this guy, this doctor, who is an American, uh, and the, first, the creation of the first Oxford Dictionary. Now, I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but this one scene was just, like, super impressive. The whole story was intriguing because it gave insight to a, a passion of uh, a study of mine, which is uh, early asylums, just to see what was going on and how people tried to understand brokenness at different eras and, and points in history. And in this one scene... Um, Dr. Murray has now uh, been introduced to the madman, who is uh, Dr. Minter. Is that his name? Something like that. And they're sitting on a bench inside the insane asylum. And Dr. Murray is introduced to him, and he has no idea. He thinks he's the, the warden over. He thinks he's the scientist, the mad scientist who's over the asylum. He has no idea he's actually the madman who's been contributing this massive amount of data and they sit there, and as Murray discovers that this is the madman who's been contributing this massive amount of data to his, his dictionary, this is what is said. This is what unfolds. I wish I could say it in a British accent because it sounds a lot better, but I don't have it, okay? And one could dare say that it is beautiful here. This is what Murray says. And then Dr. Minter says this, listen to the leaves, scratch the earth. Sometimes it sounds like gunfire, and sometimes like, and he pauses. 
And Dr. Murray says, and sometimes it sounds like applause. Now, I thought that was interesting and very insightful because what was happening at that moment was a very natural thing, and they could both experience and understand uh, what it means to hear something like the, la- the leaves rattling, leaves scratching the earth as it was described. But oftentimes, depending upon a person's perception, the way they perceive that is either like gunfire, because Winter or Mentor was a, a war vet, or like applause. In our human experiences, the variability that puts us together in the way we see, in the way that we think, in the way that we understand moment by moment and day by day, the experiences and the data around us are often built and contributed. This is a biblical way to think about our perceptions of things that happen in our environment. So we ask the question, what does it mean to be healthy? How do we understand what it means to be healthy? Because it seems as though in the scripture, Psalm 19 is helping us to to understand. It's at least giving us hope that what God has given us in his special revelation is going to do something that no other tool can accomplish. That it's going to revive the soul. It's going to restore the soul. Now, as we consider this, I want to contrast this with what is there in the mental health world. Now, I'm not saying that every observation from the mental health world is bad. What I am saying, however, is that the philosophies that are employed have a very naturalistic bent. And therefore, the way in which they look through that prism into man's problems are often leaning in a direction that turns us to describe the problems, why they happen and how they happen, forcing us to aim at something that's a non-biblical expression of how restoration of human souls actually happens. So I say that as a guard and a caution from the scriptures, that what's happening often is the vain philosophies and empty deceptions that we are so inclined to because they sound and feel so much, so much like the experiences that we, we feel on a daily basis, that we would not be deluded in explaining and understanding from that reality, the naturalistic world that we're so a part of. What is normal? From the biblical text, we see very distinct descriptions, and we could do this maybe in like three parts. So prior to Genesis chapter 3, there's a distinct normal. There's a distinct expression of man being created in the image of God. And as revelation occurs, that response by Adam through toil, through loving his wife, through being fruitful and multiplied, by keeping the garden, by responding to God in the cool of the day, is an expression of glory and worship. But then you see an alternate wisdom enter. We're going to talk more about that on Sunday morning. We see an alternate wisdom enter. And now the fall occurs. And a new normal begins. A new normal that expresses not peace and rest. Not human flourishing in our toil in relation to God. Now these things, as Solomon would describe them, become vanity. They become purposeless and meaningless as they're disconnected in our worldview as just simply earthly earthly things that we pursue. When we think about happiness as being the primary goal that we're all aiming at, the difficulty is now anything that hinders that happiness becomes the evil. You see, all of us, the Bible says, trouble is normal. Difficulty is normal. When we think about darkness, for us to assume that everything that we experience that is in the direction of despair and depression, uh, the Bible describes many well-saved people, 
many of high godly character, very mature even in the faith, who come to places and moments in their life where they experience devastation and despair. Job had an experience like that where he tells God, I wish I were never born. And the Bible describes Job was not privy to the first two chapters uh, that he was the most righteous man on the earth at that time. Elijah, who had just come off of Mount Carmel, says, Lord, it's enough. Take my life. David, you're well acquainted with that in Psalm 6, Psalm 42, Psalm 34, Psalm 77. Solomon describes something very similar in Ecclesiastes 5, 13 through 17. Listen to the language that he uses. And if you just have time, maybe sometime over the next couple of weeks, just read Ecclesiastes. And I promise what will happen is the experiences of Solomon will resonate with you because we all walk through difficulty. This is one excerpt. He says, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him uh, uh, who toils for the wind? Verse 17, moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. What's common to us in a world that's cursed by sin is darkness and vexation of the soul. Anger, difficulty, backbiting, which cyclically, when we find ourselves in that, repeatedly become oppressive and even described in the New Testament as being bondage. Ecclesiastes 11.8 says like this, So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but also let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. To have vexation of soul is quite normal. What I'm saying is, biblically, we have to be very cautious that we would cease describing those things as medical disorders or medical diseases. We have to be very cautious in the way in which we describe these psychological or soulish vexations, as the Puritans would describe it, in categories that are quite foreign to Scripture. Because what will happen is, whatever you describe to be the ultimate problem of people guides you directionally into what you believe to be the solution. And I fear what's happening when we describe human problems from a way that's not biblical is we begin to aim at things, at things that are not called Jesus to restore. Can I encourage you just for a second? Is that every human problem is intended to be repaired and restored by Jesus, even physical problems. You say, well, how do you know that? Do you hope in the resurrection? Paul says, listen, if the resurrection is not true in Romans 15, that I'm above all most to be what? Pitied. And he's talking about this beautiful resurrection that he's longing for and looking forward to that Jesus has secured for him at which all the difficulties that he even experienced in life would be washed away. And at that time, his hope was Jesus, not in a changing of environment except for being transported to heaven. To have vexation of the soul is, is normal. The image of God in man is really designed to express worship. And what we see post-fall is a brokenness of that image. A, a part of what we wrestle with most is just the desire to express that image, but the guilt that, and shame that we experience, the nakedness that we feel when we don't. And the scriptures make very clear how that changes, how that is to be distinct. 
You see, what's happened is the way we've set this discussion, in my opinion, is quite out of balance. We begin with the premise of the mental health system, and we try to take the scriptures to overlay against that. The reason that's self-defeating is because the Bible doesn't speak about human problems in those terms. And when the Bible doesn't speak about human problems in those terms, it forces us to look for answers outside of the scripture. And so we think, well, we have a different category. We can go to those things. What I would propose is, like church, like church history has done, is to look at human problems and try to describe them categorically from the scriptures. One more passage that I want us to consider, and then I'll set us up for tomorrow, some of the talks that I'm going to do uh, tomorrow. Turn to Matthew chapter 11, and this will be where I finish. Matthew chapter 11. You see, here's the beautiful thing that we see in the scriptures is that Christianity has an understanding of what ought to be. We have an understanding of normal. We have a plumb line, if you will. We, we have someone to measure ourselves against that was intended to be normal humanity. And tomorrow, one of the things that I'm going to try and argue is that Jesus is normal. Jesus is normal. Matthew chapter 11, and we'll finish with this, verse 28. He says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know what Jesus assumes? He, he assumes that in your life, you're going to be laboring. You're going to be wrestling. You're going to be oppressed, right? There's a reason that we describe that in the English language as labor. Ladies, amen? Right? I've watched my wife go through this five times. The, second, the, the last time was with twins, and uh, it's work. That's oversimplified. Labor, meaning that life is labor. You ever know, notice why Jesus says often, and Ed, you mentioned this passage, do not be troubled or take heart. Why does Jesus tell us to do that? It's because what's normal in life is you're going to be uh, forced into situations where your heart's going to waver. Your heart's going to be pressured to, to lose hope, to lose faith, to lose heart. All you labor and heavy laden. He's saying that this is normal in a cursed world. In a world that's bound by death, where death is an enemy, this is what we're against. We're going to experience shadows of it. And those are the people who labor and are heavy laden. He says, come to me. This is the call. And notice, this is the object. This is the place at which he says to come for the answers to all these problems. And my fear is we've followed a philosophy that's taking us not toward Jesus, but toward something else as a hope to fix that which we think ails us. Jesus says here, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you remember where we started? What is it that we're aiming at in humanity? Shalom. It's peace. We want rest. All of us want rest, and that's a good desire. That's what we're aiming for in heaven is we will enter our what? Rest. That's what we want. That's what's normal to pursue. But here in this cursed world, we don't have it. And Jesus says, I'm the source. I'm the source of peace and rest. And then he goes on, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm gentle and all, all he's saying here is repeated from the Old Testament, Proverbs 9:10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When uh, Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, in him is, are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, he's saying, when you see through the lens of Jesus by obeying and trusting and believing what he commands as a disciple of the Lord Jesus, the way you see life is differently. And now I'm less burdened. Why? Because I know the things that are around me aren't the things that de determine me. 
This is critical, and he closes by saying this. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Even in the term that we try and use of psychological problems, it's really trying to describe the immaterial part of man and the psychological or the soulish vexation that we have. Jesus here, I think, coupled with Psalm 19 and many other places of Scripture, describes uh, that rest is possible. And rest is not dependent on environmental transition. That rest is possible and dependent on him. And that's what's normal. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this time that you've given us and the things to consider. And God, I, I believe very truly that these are weighty things and difficult things and they're not simple. And God, I, I don't pretend to understand them all. So God, in our weakness, in our weakness in understanding, I pray, Father, that your word would be strong. Uh, God, I pray that we would be cautioned appropriately, that we would want to use your word uh, as the plumb line, as the lens by which we see to understand what's broken. It's not a denial of things that are broken. It's a denial of the way we understand them. And so, Father, would you help us to understand biblically that it would lead us to compassionate care, that the church would be the primary place that we would see because we wield your word and we have the hope, the key to the kingdom of heaven, which is the confession of the Lord Jesus. And so, Father, would you help us to employ that well as we minister to the very real brokenness that humans experience, that we experience on a daily basis. And may it be so in Christ's name. Amen.